Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We've gathered here to welcome a new addition to Ripperature, The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper by Hallie Rubenholt. Joining the show today to discuss the book is Deborah Arif, a researcher of the lives of not only the victims of the Whitechapel murders, but many of the peripheral persons associated with this case, and also individuals involved in other infamous Victorian murder cases. She is the co-editor with Paul Begg and Sean Crundle of the new Jack the Ripper A to Z, and amongst Deborah's numerous finds was the discovery of Catherine Eddowes' fourth child, Frederick, who appears, of course, in the book The Five. And also with us is Paul Begg, the author of Jack the Ripper The Facts, The Definitive History, co-author with John Bennett of The Forgotten Victims, CSI Whitechapel, and the complete and essential Jack the Ripper, as well as being the longtime editor of the Jack the Ripper A to Z. Robert McLaughlin is a researcher, as well as the author of the highly acclaimed and sought-after first Jack the Ripper victim photographs. Amanda Lloyd is an avid reader and collector of Ripper-related books and is the administrator of the only online Facebook group for Ripper book collectors, Ripperology Books and More. John Reese is a lecturer and frequent contributor to Ripperologist Magazine, and Mark Ripper, under the name M.W. Oldridge, is the co-author of The A to Z of Victorian Crime, the author of Murder and Crime, Whitechapel and District, The Moat Farm Mystery, and is the editor of the notable British Trial Series volume on the trial of Israel Lipsky. Thank you, everyone, for joining the show today. Although there has been a considerable amount of research into the victims done by Ripperologists like Neil Sheldon, Deborah Arif, and Chris Scott, and others, all of whom are acknowledged as sources in the book. When it was first announced, Ripperologists were still anxious to find out if the author had made any new discoveries about the lives of the canonical five victims. So let's start off by discussing any new information that we've seen, and also mention what aspects of the book that our panel may have enjoyed. I saw Hallie Rubenhold, the author of this book, uh, give a talk in September 2018 um, at an event in Spitalfields, and uh, it was it was very good. It was really good. One of the things that she mentioned during that talk, and something that uh, she describes in the book, is Annie Chapman's time in a sanatorium uh, being treated for uh, alcoholism. Uh, that was something of which ripperologists were kind of uh, cautiously aware. Um, before the publication of this book, but she has found the sanatorium records. Um, so uh, I thought that was that's really great. You know, it's it's very um, pertinent to um, to her to her subject and uh, genuinely new information. I was really pleased to read that. Yeah, I like that bit as well. And what was definitely new to me was that uh, Catherine Eddowes had a daughter named Harriet Eddowes died in infancy in I think it was 1869. Yeah, and I suppose uh, I should also mention there's some um, some of Annie Chapman's children who I wasn't aware of have been discovered, and uh, so they're um, now part of this story and weren't before. So again, I was pleased to read about that. The selection process on uh, the Peabody buildings was new to me. That there was I knew about the Peabody buildings, but I didn't know the extent of 
a um, a selection process, you know, to, to who they who they uh, allow to live there. I thought that was really interesting. I found the actual bee body chapter quite a, quite an interesting um, part of the book. Another thing which uh, I think is worth uh, mentioning at this point: uh, Marianne Nichols' first child was William Edward Walker Nichols, born in 1864, and um, the book mentions him. Uh, it says that um, he, in fact, lived more than a year and nine months. Um, I knew about that child, and um, that was information which appeared in Neil Bell's book uh, two or three years ago. Uh, but I don't know about the child's death, and presumably, um, Hanny Ribbenholt has found that, and I wasn't able to find that. So that's something. Amongst the new information and new sources, there is the... Uh, information that was about the people living in Peabody dwellings, which also included a reference to William Nichols leaving the property to go off and live somewhere else, and he got a sort of bad mark. Uh, that that was all new. So that's a source that we haven't seen, which we could do with going and finding and suggesting yeah. if it produces anything further. The sanatorium records uh, were new to me anyway, but then I wasn't following it with that degree of depth. But uh, but those are another set of records that we could do with going to look at to see if they tell us anything more. That's the second thing. Putting the, the lives of the victims into context is what really brings the book alive for most people. That is where I think we get the big difficulty because whilst there are some small details like names of children or deaths or that sort of stuff, any big information about the victim, something significant and new, there's there's not much of that in there. But the context is new. The trouble is, of course, that what she's done is to take the framework, the skeleton, of all the information, everything that we've known about the victims, and she's put that into context. She's added the colour, the the stuff that makes the book really readable. The context is great. We've got no problem with that. But it's important that people realise that the basic facts are everything that we've we found out. And and that's one of the obviously one of the criticisms that we have of uh, of Halley claiming in this book and elsewhere, that this is stuff that, that nobody knew about. Yeah, she, she can really conjure up the world and set the scene and build the picture. Um, and it's really good in that sense, because if you've got no idea what the Victorian era was like for poor people, it's, you know, it does conjure up the images of what it was like. And I, I think that's actually a positive to the book. Back to what you were saying about taking the sections that she wrote on the Peabody buildings and a researcher interested in the lives of the victims could build upon that um, and go out and explore more. Debs um, pointed out a section in the book, I believe it concerned Catherine Eddowes in the workhouse and, and with her son Frederick. I'd actually looked at all this two years ago, Catherine Eddowes in the workhouse, 
Uh, and that's how I found that she'd had another son called Frederick through all the entries that had followed through and have found her being pregnant, being transferred to the infirmary and having Frederick, which was a child that hadn't been mentioned before. And I also found the middle name of her other son, which led to me finding his birth record that I did look at this two years ago. And Hallie's gone down the same route and found the same thing as me. And I, um, I did think at the time that the records kind of showed that Edwards was living a lifestyle of a vagrant. She was hawking, moving from place to place, using the casual ward. But the records only exist for one casual ward or a couple of casual wards. Not Whitechapel, Myland, any of those, but for Newington. And because Catherine came from that area and she was living in Whitechapel, it would be normal if she was travelling between those two places to use the Newington casual ward and not be a, um, someone who was a vagrant or a hawker or, do you know what I mean? Right. So, so in her book, she just mentions one of the stays, but indicates that there were more of her yeah. bouncing around as a vagrant, like you had said, whereas you've actually produced a list of the places and dates and how she identified herself like what, as a hawker or, or whatnot. And on each time she registered over a period of several years. Yeah, over the 70s. And even in 1888 in April, she was using the New Newington Casual Ward at least once. Whereas in the book, we just get a couple sentences basically covering that decade, essentially, of being in and out of the workhouse. Yeah, she just makes a summary of it. She mm. Like, we're more careful. The way we write, we reference everything uh, and we show our research, whereas she just summarized it. Mm -hmm. And that kind of indicates, like, kind of how this book is aimed more at a, as a, for a general readership as opposed to a ripperologist from the beginning, right? Like I said elsewhere, we like lists. Yeah. <laughs> we don't mind so much the absence of a lot of context. But the context that she puts into the book, um, you all thought then was a pretty positive thing. Yes, I do. I think uh, that's very important. It is basically the, the, the purpose of, uh, of the book. Is the is putting the the lives of the victims into a context to explain the things that they were going through, and that is the way of being able to draw conclusions from information. Um, it used to be said that raw data without context was meaningless. It isn't really, but it can be. But you can draw conclusions once you have the the context. So, for right or for wrong, one might choose to conclude that uh, the Nicholses uh, were thought of as being a bit of cut above the rest of the the the, the neighbourhood, and they may even have seen themselves that way. Now, that's that's a conclusion that we can draw from the context of. The, uh, the the rigorous vetting procedure that they had to go through um, to be offered a, a tenancy and the uh, rules that they had to live under whilst they were there and the fact that if you broke those rules you could be ejected all that sort of uh, thing would suggest that Peabody was was a little bit above the rest. So context gives you the opportunity to draw conclusions. And that's great. That, that's really 
good stuff to know. I don't think anybody can read the life of Elizabeth Stride when she was in Sweden without thinking that she had a hell of a time. Uh, and that's all really down to context, although a number of all, all the facts of, of where she was and, and what she was doing and stuff, that's all been known, or most of it has been known. And as you were saying about raw data being uh, so dry and clinical and boring, Deborah shared with me the death certificate of Catherine Edo's daughter, Harriet, who we mentioned earlier that was discovered apparently by Hallie Rubenhold, who died in 1869 of marasmus, which is starvation, at only five weeks old. And it, it's the death certificate states that Catherine was present at Harriet's passing. We assume that the author had seen this death certificate as it's the only document that describes what happened to Harriet and the way she describes the child's death with food having ran out in the home, Kate feeling her daughter's final convulsions as she's holding Harriet in her arms. To me, that is writing a pretty excellent biography. I mean, when the subject of your biography has not much else besides these clinical data records about their lives and these lists that I referred to earlier. Uh, that's what an author has to do if they choose to go out and write a biography of, the, of, of some of these people. Wouldn't you agree? I think that it's something that uh, biographers do. It's, in this particular instance, I think you can probably... That, that was basically fiction, unless there was something to say that, uh, that that's what happened. I mean, the child could quite easily have died anywhere else just because Catherine Eddowes was there. It doesn't mean that the child died in her arms and that she felt the convulsions of the little body as the last breath was, was uh, expelled. Um, that's almost um, sort of Victorian melodrama. Right, but, 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 but how else? Um, I guess I, I think that it's almost impossible to write about something like that without injecting it with that fiction because what, what you're wanting to do is have your readers emotionally connect with your subjects. And there really isn't any other way for an author to go about doing it if you're wanting to get that emotional connection from the readers to Catherine Eddowes, right? Yeah, I agree with you uh, entirely. It's literally just a matter of whether or not in that particular instance uh, the awfulness of a, a baby dying from starvation uh, is is awful, and you have to try and convey that awfulness. And Hallie Rubenhold did that extremely well. Um, is it history? I don't know. It's it's. We have no idea whether that is what actually happened or not. So we just know that the child died. So do you actually write your? Do you, do you write it in a way that uh, uh, gets that across? Uh, without introducing fictional elements. Uh, I mean, we, we, you, you, you're perfectly able to write and say, 
how awful that must have been. You can speculate about how Catherine Eddowes must have felt when that happened, but we don't actually know. And so, therefore, it points up this difference between historical fact and and the colour of, of fiction, of making it come alive. Is the one strength in the book. It's that the, the actual context in the book is, is its strength. That's what's going to draw readers, and that's what readers are going to like. And Absolutely. Yes, no doubt. Yes, no doubt about that. And I think that's the one thing that, that uh, the author has done really well. I mean, I found myself getting quite into the story. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the stories as they were. If I didn't know anything about the subject, I would have picked it up and I would say, oh, that's a good book. I really enjoyed that. She can tell a story, and that's one, one of the positives about the author, that she can at least tell a story. And, and I think she did that, that part of it very well. Can I go back to um, the death of Catherine Eddowes' child, just for a second? Yes. So, Ted, am I right in thinking, you've seen the death certificate now? Yes. Yeah. For, for Harriet, is it? For mm-hmm. Harriet, And it says Merasmus, does it? It does, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I'm, I'm on slightly thin ice here because I'm not, I'm not the expert, but um, my impression is that um, Merasmus is like failure, failure to thrive. Failure to thrive. Yeah. Yes, that's what it means, yes. Yeah, and um, the book draws the conclusion points us in a direction um, where we we should it, the, the child's failure to thrive and death by Merasmus was a result of financial hardship in the home mm-hmm. but I, I'm not sure whether, you know, star, starvation because there's no food there is not the same as failure to thrive or inanition I think and so I don't know whether the conclude whether you can then infer from that that money was short. Do you see what I mean? Oh yes, I mean the baby, the baby could have had some sort of heart heart uh, yeah. condition anything any, anything like that. And it's Victorian England, and those sorts of things happen sadly very very often. Uh, but I think that that's an example where um, the author takes the raw data and makes something rather more of it. I'm not sure whether I agree with her. Leaving the convulsions and, and that stuff to one side, and clearly it's an extremely sad case. Um, and there's, you know... The convulsions, no, are mentioned, sorry, the convulsions are mentioned on the death certificate. Okay, okay. That's, yeah. that's good, that's good. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure. That, that bit actually struck me as being slightly jarring um, when I read that. I'm, I, I don't... I'm not. I'm not convinced by the idea that there was financial hardship at the time. Although I'm sure they were not well off, uh, I'm not convinced financial hardship led in any in direct or indirect way to the death of the baby. And uh, I'm not. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm not. I don't feel completely comfortable with turning that raw data into, as Paul described, a sort of Victorian melodramatic scene. It does go more towards fiction at that point for me rather than history but um, so I'm, I have some reservations about that method I think she's trying to humanise the women but 
by yes. fictional addict. You have to fictional addict too, because we don't know anything about them really. We know the bare bones, like Paul said already, but that's it. Yeah, no, I agree, and and I'm even as I'm saying it, I'm thinking what a how clinical I sound. About yeah, exactly. It. Um, we feel bad for saying it, but sure, but I, but I still can't really shake that feeling, to be honest. But it has, it is fiction, really, because we don't know whether that Erasmus. I don't know if it could be as a, res, a result of neglect, because we know that uh, Catherine Eddowes abandoned her children and they were taken into the warehouse because they were found wandering around, and I think that happened twice. In the workhouse records, you stuck it. We're not going to know, isn't it? Really? We're not no, know. we don't know. We don't know. No, but then if we don't know, should we should we try and uh, create a, a scenario around it, a kind a, a kind of scene around it? I'm not sure that that I I, I do feel like I, I sound very cynical and very clinical, and and but I'm not. It just makes me feel slightly uncomfortable. Yes, I, I agree. I mean, I mean, it's it, it is a very difficult line to draw between what is historical fact and what is reading into the historical fact things that may not be there. And so, it's fine to report what was on the death certificate. It would be fine to possibly speculate about what that means. But if you step over that line to say, to give some impression that this is what happened, then you're going into the realms of fiction. So uh, it's the just the way that you would handle it is that if you have that death certificate and you have the 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 wording on the death certificate, then you draw conclusions from that. But you shouldn't then take that into the realms of of fiction. Yes, I feel like um, one of the weaknesses of this book is that there's too little negotiation with the reader about how to interpret the sources and what uh, weight and relevance to give them. So I think sometimes the author is too tempted to make definitive statements about things. For example, financial hardship led to the death of the child. Uh, that is a paraphrase. That is not directly from the book. But you could. there's a whole negotiation that we could have there about whether financial hardship was, part of it was, Deb says, whether there was uh, an aspect of neglect or whether there was, an as, as um, Amanda said, there's an aspect of um, like neonatal or congenital illness. I think there's... We don't really hear those discussions. We don't. We don't find out in this book why the author came to the conclusion she came to. She just tells us a lot of the time what the conclusion is, without sort of giving us insight into her cognitive processes and how she has come to that assessment. Does anyone agree with that? I agree. Yes, with that. Yeah. I agree. Uh, the issue that has been debated for some time, decades in fact, that the book takes as its guiding theme is that three of the five women, Nichols, Chapman, and Eddowes, had never in their lives had to resort to prostitution in, in order to survive, and that Stryden Kelly had, but that there's no evidence that any of the canonical five were reduced to selling themselves on the street on the night of their murder, which eliminates the widespread assumption that their murderer posed as a sex client, and in some cases, using this ruse, had lured them into the places where they were murdered. 
A lot of ripperologists would say that the question about the victims being prostitutes really only matters if the writer, reader, or researcher is interested in examining the MO of the killer, his approach when carrying out the crime. And so a lot of us whose interest in the case isn't suspect-driven haven't really cared about this question. The book, on the other hand, while it attempts to remove Jack the Ripper from these women's biographies, also seeks to remove any possibility that the women may have been so desperate that they had to on occasion resort to selling themselves. To do this, the author completely leaves out or misrepresents several contemporary reports and accounts that do provide some evidence that these women may have been making ends meet by working as a prostitute. So let's inform our listeners of a few of the sources that the book either doesn't mention or distorts in order to convince the reader of this claim that the victims were not prostitutes. Paul Begg, would you like to start? Yes. Um, as you say, the, the, this uh, is a theme uh, running through the book and uh, also taking up a prominent role in the publicity surrounding the five. And uh, she also argues, which is a, uh, a point that I don't think she substantiates in the book at all, is that it was because of sexist police in 1888 who branded all homeless women prostitutes. Uh, and, uh, and also, of course, she, she argues that uh, the fact that they were prostitutes has been unquestioningly accepted ever since. That's not strictly true, of course. As you say, um, we have questioned whether they were prostitutes um, and did so in the Jack the Ripper A to Z about 20 years ago. Um, but anyway, there are numerous times throughout the book when she writes that the victims were not prostitutes. On page 15, she says, uh, Jack the Ripper killed prostitutes, or so it has always been believed, but... There is no hard evidence to suggest that three of his five victims were prostitutes at all. And those victims, as you say, are Nichols, Chapman, and Eddowes. Now, on 7th of September, 1888, a police report written by uh, Inspector Helson of the J Division summarized the investigation to date and referred to the evidence of William Nichols. And he says, and I quote, they separated about nine years since in consequence of her drunken habits. For some time, he allowed her five shillings per week, but in 1882, it having come to his knowledge that she was living the life of a prostitute, he discontinued the allowance. In consequence of this, she became chargeable to the guardians of the parish of Lambeth, by whom the husband was summoned to show cause why he should not be ordered to contribute towards her support, and these facts being proved, the summons was dismissed. Here we have Inspector Helson saying that William Nichols had stated that he had stopped paying his wife's support because he had found that she was a prostitute. I don't know whether Hallie Rubenhold would classify a statement like that in a MEPO report as being hard evidence. But the book makes no mention of Helson's report. It ignores it completely. And that 
is extraordinary to me because surely her readers deserve to be told what Helson had written so that they can decide for themselves whether or not this theme that runs throughout the book has legs or not. Yet what is curious to me is that in the bibliography she includes a book called Common Prostitutes and Ordinary Citizens, Commercial Sex in London, 1885 to 1960, which was published in 2011 and written by Dr. Julia Lace, a lecturer in modern British and gender history at Birkbeck University in London. Lace referred to William Nichols' statement. So Dr. Lace refers to William Nichols' statement to the police. She writes, she had separated from her husband seven years before and, like Tabram's husband, he had subsequently cut off his support payment to her with the court's consent after he had proved she was earning money through prostitution. So here is one of uh, Hallie Rubenhold's academic uh, sources who's read this information as well and basically seems to agree with it and again, it's just ignored. So she's ignoring some sources that she's cited and she's ignoring a MIPO report. I just find that extraordinary. And um, there's another piece of evidence which uh, she actually messes around with, but we, we can come back to that. Right, now according to an early and uh, widely published newspaper report, uh, a number of women visited the mortuary to view the body, uh, but they were unable to, uh, to to identify it. And then a woman, who we now know was Ellen Holland, uh, came and viewed the body, and she identified it as Polly, with whom she shared lodgings at 18 Thrall Street. The report, and this is a newspaper report, uh, and... Uh, it was widely published, so this one comes from the Pall Mall Gazette of the 1st of September, 1888. The report then reads, Women from that place, that's 18 Thrall Street, were fetched and they identified the deceased as Polly, who had shared a room with three other women in the place on the usual terms of such houses, nightly payment of four pence each, each woman having a separate bed. It was gathered that the deceased had led the life of an unfortunate while lodging in the house, which was only for about three weeks past. Nothing more was known of her by them, but that she, when she uh, presented herself for her lodging on Thursday night, she was turned away by the deputy. And then it goes on about uh, uh, a remark that she made about a bonnet that she'd got. This statement is by women and it's perfectly consistent with uh, with what the police would have done at the time. They would have uh, fetched other people from 18 Thrall Street to confirm the identification by Helen Holland and in the hope of obtaining more information and all they could ascertain from these women is that they knew Nichols as a prostitute. That report is, 
Well, the, the significance of that report is utterly ignored by Hallie Rubenholt. She does include it in her book, but she judiciously edits it to give a completely different impression. But we can talk about that a bit later on. So those are uh, evidence that uh, that Nichols was a prostitute. Yeah, and there's uh, other reports. It's it's not just with Polly Nichols, but you know we see it with uh, Annie Chapman as well. You know, um, more evidence in, from the official files in a report by Inspector Chandler of September 8, 1888. Um, he said the woman has been identified by Timothy Donovan. Deputy Crossingham's lodging house, 35 Dorset Street, Spitalfields, who states he has known her for about 16 months as a prostitute, and for the past four months she has lodged at the above house. Um, and once again, like, you know, that's the very definitive statement. Um, you know, it actually says the word prostitute. And now, in the papers, uh, Donovan is a bit more guarded about this, but understandably so. He was deputy lodging house keeper, and saying something like that in public could get him into a lot of trouble legally about um, renting out his establishment and being a common body house. Um, so he was very careful for his statements to the press, but um, in his statement, at least to Chandler, it, it, he spells out very clearly. And this is somebody who knew uh, Annie Chapman for a long period of time. She lodged for the previous four months in uh, crossing hands. And uh, just that mere fact, because um, Ruben Holt says in her introduction that she wants to use sources of the people who knew uh, the victims, and, uh, and which is why she disregards many of those who did not know the victims. But Timothy Donovan clearly knew Annie Chapman, and yet she disregards, you know, his statement uh, to the police. And this is like a huge oversight. But once again, it just reinforces, you know, the notion that we know about Nichols. And even if we go back further in the files, which is not necessary, but now, she hasn't. She also said that she yes, has yes. examined the Met Police reports. Yeah. Um, so it's not like she didn't, or you know, she, if she's claim, if she, so she's claiming to have used these reports as a source. But yet, if that's true, it appears that she's leaving out the instances contained in those reports where they directly refer to the victims as prostitutes. Correct. Now, now she, for example, if she uh, believes that the police in these examples are wrong or they're acting out of some ulterior motive, like misogyny or something else, then she doesn't state it in the book, but she should. She should at least put forth that evidence and explain to us why it is invalid in her opinion. Right. Yeah. And, and, and we have other examples. A man called Thomas Bates, who was a watchman who knew Elizabeth Stride, he was interviewed by a journalist working for the Star. So this is a first-hand report of what was uh, said, what he said. And he said um, that Long Liz, who, which is what Elizabeth Stride's nickname, quote, was a clean and hard-working woman. Her usual occupation was that of a charwoman, 
And it was only when driven to um, extremities that she walked the streets. He added, Lord bless you. When when she could get no work, she had to do the best she could for a living. I think I bother with the accent. Uh, But a neater and cleaner woman never lived. So here we have a man saying that she was a casual prostitute, which is what ripperologists have been saying about the victims all the time, who walked the streets when she had to. So here's a, a witness who's acknowledging that, that Elizabeth Stride was a prostitute. He does, does his damnedest to, uh, to make it clear that she was hardworking and only went on the streets when she had to. But it's still stated that she was a prostitute. That, that's a good example, isn't it, of attitudes of the time. And, I mean, here's a man who actually, it sounds like he almost admired her for the way she struggled and kept things going. And he, he sounds like he was quite fond of her, you know, he knew her by sight. And, you know, when I talk about attitudes towards these women, it, it wasn't really true in, within the community. Men and women knew that other women struggled. And I think that that is a very good, that's a very good example, I think, of, of um, you know, of attitudes at the time. You know, they, these women yeah. didn't deserve to die the way they did. And you know, they, were, they were very human, they were people. And I, I, I actually like that quote. That's a direct quote from somebody who knew her. Yes, and and also, I mean, I, I can't give you the page quote offhand, but there's somewhere in the book where Harry Rubenhold actually says that uh, the people were um, quite happy to acknowledge that their friends were, were prostitutes. Uh, she doesn't give a source for that, and I'll try and find it, but she doesn't give a source for that. And I don't believe it's true because I think the majority of attitude at that time was don't speak ill of the dead. And I think they worked very hard in some cases to avoid making those admissions. And here is an example of a man who knew Elizabeth Stride and he's saying that, yeah, she was a prostitute, but look, she also worked extremely hard. She did whatever work she could get hold of to to earn money. But from time to time when things were really bad, she, she walked the streets. But are we, that's something that people have to do. And I, I think that, I think, as you say, it's a very, uh, a very personal thing. We, we see it again in, at the inquest of, um, of Annie Chapman. Her friend Amelia Palmer was specifically asked whether Annie Chapman earned money from prostitution. And she said, I cannot say. I'm afraid she is not particular. She was out late at night at times. She told me so. This quote um, shows Palmer being a little bit evasive, trying to avoid a direct answer, not giving a yes or no answer. But... I'm afraid she is not particular, is about probably about as close to an admission that she was a prostitute as somebody was prepared to give at that time. So there's a lot of, of statements here um, 
and this is just a, a, a random selection. I mean, we haven't gone searching for them. These are just ones that we know about. But uh, there are lots of uh, statements here that that show that, uh, that that these women were prostitutes, and none of them are addressed by uh, Hallie Rubenhold. They're, they're not included in her book at all. And I think one of the important things about that, Paul, is that um, all of these should be viewed in their totality, right? It's, it's not just one single piece of evidence. We're just saying, okay, here, there's, there's one file that calls one victim a prostitute. But mm. there's, there's a totality of evidence. There's, as we listed, many, many examples of this. Yes. And, and given, uh, I mean, an important point, I think, is that uh, given that very few of the, the, the Home Office and Scotland Yard files have survived, and, and given that we, we hard, have hardly any uh, actual statements given to, uh, to the police and, uh, and, and so forth, we were lucky that we can go through the MEPO files and find, at least find the, the reference of... Uh, uh, to, to Nichols and Chapman. That, that, that's extremely lucky. Goodness knows what other evidence are in those files uh, had we got them all because people would have been more prepared to explain privately to a policeman than they would want to make public at the inquest or anywhere else. And the fact that they weren't pushed on this at the inquest despite the fact that uh, Harry Rudenhold suggests otherwise uh, indicates that there was no real attempt for anybody to uh, to, to to show that the, the women were prostitutes. No, they, there, doesn't, there doesn't seem to be a moral agenda by the inquest or the police in, in that sense. Yeah. Well, I think we're very lucky that we've got these various uh, reports. I'm sure if we go through, uh, we'll find more. I know that when some 20 odd years ago it's difficult to look back on it now but I know when uh, with the, my colleagues on the A to Z I know when we looked at this question uh, we concluded that the evidence for, for uh, Nichols and uh, Chapman were, was, was conclusive in our view we were doubted that uh, uh, that Eddowes that the evidence was so strong in the, in the case of Eddowes uh, we were picked up on that by uh, Stuart Evans and Donald Rumbelow in their book, uh, Scotland Yard Investigates, and they gave their reasons why they thought Eddowes was a prostitute. So uh, the, this, this is a question that has been examined uh, and thought about in the past, and that again is something that Hallie Rubenhold seems to imply that you know it's all been unquestioningly accepted by sexist researchers down down time and I think, I think, sorry if if, uh, if I can cut in mm. uh, so I think for um, I think for me it's a disappointment of the book that uh, the evidence about the victims uh, use of prostitution to I, I take it that that is that's a, probably the the most appropriate term I can think of is subsistence prostitution. They were not prostitutes perhaps every single day, but they, but like Elizabeth Stride and Thomas Bates describes that, you know, when times were hard, 
That's how they made it into meat. It's disappointing for me that that evidence has been completely obscured in this book. Because actually, by doing that, the reader has lost the chance to understand part of these people's vulnerabilities. And I don't understand myself, I don't really understand why it is necessary for the book to do that. I think the book is doing what... Uh, you know, doing a great job in terms of restoring people to the historical record where maybe they haven't had um, the exposure before. Uh, And that as a principle, I have no problem with at all. But it seems to fight shy of the idea that prostitutes specifically are worth restoring to the historical record or are worth our attention or or that they're worth our, our compassion. And I don't understand quite why the book draws that line quite so clearly. I, I, it seems to me that whether someone's working in prostitution to make ends meet or not, they are entitled to our respect and our compassion. Uh, you don't have to obscure the evidence to show they were working as prostitutes in order to have respect and compassion for them. But the book deliberately sinks to obscure that evidence as if that is the only way that these women can be restored to some sort of uh, public virtue. And I just don't understand that. It seems to be a very prejudicial way to treat women. Yes, it is. And and to to just follow on from that, the only uh, thought that went through my mind uh, originally, and I think it's gone through the minds of, of others as well, uh, is that that, that it was that, that really it's having a go at men, it's having a go at the, the police in 1888, and it's having a go at researchers since, and by trying to argue that these women weren't prostitutes and that we should consider, we should consider them as people that thinking of them as prostitutes has somehow dehumanised them. But I, 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 I don't argue, think that has happened. I, I, no, no, I'm not, I, I don't think that that's happened either. And I'm, by definition, the police in 1888 were male, but researchers since 1888 have not all exclusively been male. This has not been a, a process which has been initiated and uh, run by men, um, but by the evidence. And, and uh, you know, it, it, it's very difficult to to feel really confident about this book because a lot of people who buy the book will be uh, people who don't have knowledge of the Mepo files. They don't have knowledge of the Victorian newspapers. They don't have those other sources so that, as you said, they can make up their own minds. Mm. This book will suggest to them that there is no evidence that Nichols, Chapman and Eddowes were prostitutes. That's not true. Mm. And, And... so, therefore, it, it is a very difficult book to recommend on that basis. Yeah. When I first heard uh, about the book, I was concerned. When I, well, rather, when I first heard um, uh, Harry Rubenhold stating that the vic- three of the victims were not prostitutes, this wasn't something that she said that she was going to prove or read my book later and see the other. it was a statement of fact and I was worried that that statement of fact would 
was also get into the public domain and uh, and infect the minds of people all over the country and all over the world with this wrong piece of information, if indeed it was wrong. Because we we obviously hadn't read the book at that time, but for 130 years it had been accepted that the victims were prostitutes. We have looked at that question at various times over the last 30, 40 years or more. Uh, So it did seem... Yeah, a tad worrying that that uh, somebody was now coming along and saying, "Well, you've you've all been wrong." Yes, uh, and it's actually an injust. I feel I feel that the argument can be made that it isn't an injustice to the victims of Jack the Ripper not to acknowledge parts of their life which caused them to be extremely vulnerable. And yeah. if we are if we are going to restore, uh, and I completely happy that we should people to the historical record and to make the 2D victims of Jack the Ripper into 3D people which I think is an absolutely laudable intention we should do that by treating them as 3D people and not writing out parts of their lives that we don't approve of or which don't conform with our existing agenda and it's that's a real opportunity missed in this example it seems to be that the the, the at their most vulnerable, that's when the book turns its back on them. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, I think it's not, not particularly relevant, and, uh, but when I first became seriously interested in this subject, rather than just casually reading stuff when I saw it, it was because of Mary Kelly. And I, in my youthful mind at the time, uh, I was horrified that, uh, that, according to her story, is is that her husband was killed in a uh, mining accident, and that there was no society had no safety net for her, mm. and so as a, a young woman suddenly cast adrift in the world and sinks into prostitution, and ultimately onto the knife of, of Jack the Ripper. That struck me as a as a sort of uh, uh, moral story, a horror, horrible story. That that if anything, what was being said then about Victorian values, it kind of made the point that the Victorian yeah. values weren't <laughs> all that good to begin with. Tristly, uh, I don't I don't know of any responsible ripperologist who is completely immune to the stories of human suffering that you learn when you read about Jack the Ripper. I, I think people are um, moved by that. I think people are affected by that. We do recognise, every responsible ripperologist I know recognises that these were real people who had real lives and that they, did, that they are entitled to be treated with some respect. I think that what we... <laughs> What, what we should avoid as ripperologists is uh, fetishizing the victims almost like going too far the other way um, and making them into uh, paragons of virtue or whatever. We know what their real lives were like. They were, they were, up, they were ups and they were downs. And, you know, the, the book does a good job at telling you about that. It tells you when things were better and it tells you a bit when things were worse. Uh, we shouldn't fetishize them. We shouldn't make them into examples of something we should try to understand them and understand what happens to them understand yeah. their vulnerabilities understand their trauma we should, that that is that is what we should do 
it seems yeah, to me. Um, but we, what we cannot do is we cannot co-opt them and make them part of a wider agenda. No. Because that's not what that's not treating them with respect. Actually, that's not restoring them to the to the historical record. That's making them in. That's exploiting them. Mm. A corollary to the um, to that they weren't prostitutes. Argument is, is uh, Harry Rubenhold's argument that the victims were sleeping when uh, attacked by by Jack the Ripper. Uh, this theory seems to me to be uh, an answer to the ripperologist's argument that if they weren't prostitutes, what were they doing in the dark and lonely places where they were found? And uh, Halle Rubenhold, I think, had basically said, well, if I think of a, a plausible uh, explanation for what they were doing there, then um, that would be better. And, and, and so that they were sleeping yeah. uh, is, uh, is what she came up with. I think it's on page 13, she says. However, uh, the police were so committed to their theories about the killer's choice of victims that they failed to conclude the obvious. The Ripper targeted women while they slept. To me, I thought when I read that, well, the police in uh, H Division must have been very accustomed to women finding women asleep and finding anybody asleep in shop doorways and in alleys and, and everywhere else that perhaps that uh, these women had been sleeping would have been the first and first first thought that came to mind what do you think of uh, of that well i think it was the main thing that the, the, the book fell down on mm. The, the stories of their lives, um, you know, jogged along, and then all of a sudden there was this completely imaginary um, scene that these women were just wanting to lie down on the pole pavement and drop off to sleep. I mean, it didn't make any sense at all. Mm. You know, it was um, it, for me the whole the whole uh, sleeping nap nap theory, whatever you want to call it ruins the whole thing for me. You know, I could go along with the book to a certain degree, I could go along with it, and then this daft, it, it was daft. I mean, there was no reason why any of the women would want to suddenly curl up on the pavement or on the corner of my square or the back of a stretch. You know, it, 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 uh, it, she, she, she used it because, like you say, she had to come up with some reason why they were there. And he came up with that. Yeah, and it and it doesn't doesn't conform to the the, the facts either. I mean, no, I she, she she leaves out even more evidence in the the sleeping rough idea in her book than she does in the uh, not prostitutes. Um, but it's an example, yes, is 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 John Richardson. I mean, John Richardson's mother ran a business from the yard of 29 Hanbury Street, and he came by uh, at about 4.45, at about, you know, quarter to five, um, to check the locks on the cellar door because uh, it had been previously broken into and some tools had been stolen. Uh, and he sat on the second of the three steps leading into the yard 
next to the door behind which uh, Danny Chapman is supposed to be uh, snoring gently, and uh, he, he sits there. Yeah, he was well, yes, I mean, he said that he felt certain that if a body had been there, he would have seen it. Uh, he thought that the yard was light enough for that. Um, but his evidence calls into question Hallie Rubenhold's argument that Chapman was sleeping there. Uh, and she ignores it altogether. She just doesn't include that piece of evidence in her book. No. That, that, and that, again... Shortly before the body was found, there was a Mrs. Long who thought she saw Chapman outside 29 Hanbury Street talking to a man. Well, I can understand why Harry Rubenhold didn't get involved in the argument of whether it was or wasn't what Mrs. Long and Times and so forth. But then on the other hand, Albert Kadosh, who lived next door, to 29 Hanbury Street, came out into his yard a couple of times, and on the first occasion, he saw, uh, sorry, on the first occasion, he heard some talking coming from the yard of 29 Hanbury Street, and on the second occasion, he heard somebody fall against the fence, or heard something bump against the fence anyway. Now, that was possibly Annie Chapman being murdered. If it wasn't, then who was it? What were they doing there? And was the dead body already there when they were... You know, it raises all sorts of awkward questions. One of his... Um, one of the ways he's, in which he's quoted in the newspapers, he um, says, um, he heard some words which he did not catch, but I heard a woman say no, and then I heard a kind of scuffle going on, and someone seemed to fall heavily onto the ground against the wooden partition which divided the yard at the spot where the body was afterwards found. So that indicates that Chapman was awake, standing, I'm standing up, and scuffling, and then falling. Now, whether the perpetrator woke the victims up and had their full attention before he murdered them, you know, I guess that's a possibility. It all builds up the picture, doesn't it? That she wasn't there for a long time previously. And if you are going to sleep rough, why would you go through this house and then go to sleep in the corner of a dirty backyard instead of in the hallway? If you're, if you're going to try your luck, surely well, you right, try right your luck. By steps, right by steps where people yeah. come in and out as well. I mean, if she's going yeah. to sleep in the yard... Why not, you know, round the back somewhere or why by the steps where people will be getting up soon and and, and coming in and out? It's like with the, the Nichols um, case. Uh, Reuben Hold likes to say that no sound was ever heard by anyone concerning any of these murders. But that's just not the case. I mean, you yeah. have Kadosh... Hearing a scuffle, someone saying no, woman falling to the, or person falling to the ground after hitting up against the fence. In Nichols' case, you have Harriet Lilly, who stated that she heard faint gasps um, in a painful moan around three thirty in the evening, two doors away from Bucks from where. Paulie Nichols was discovered in Bucks Row 
followed sometimes thereafter by um, the sound of, of two men whispering to each other, which could very well be hearing Marianne Nichols being throttled and murdered, and then later, soon after, being discovered by Paul and Cross, um, which would correspond, and just like the Chapman case, there's bruising on Nichols' face. It appears that she may have been punched in the jaw. There's bruising um, on her throat. The, he grabbed her throat to, so forcefully that his fingers, individual fingers, left bruising on, on her neck uh, of Polly Nichols, which would sound maybe like what uh, Harriet Lilly heard, a painful moan followed by repeated gasps. Um, and, and in the Chapman's case, of course, there's evidence of, uh, that the coroner um, testified to of uh, evidence of strangulation. Um, you know, the, her tongue was protruding. She had been suffocated, according to the coroner. If they were sleeping, it would have been just prior to the murder, and, and the murderer would have woken them up first. Hmm. Uh, would be the only way I could make sense of the sound witnesses and the eyewitnesses and the coroner's statements. It's, it, it's interesting, the, the, the points that you've drawn there, because you get the feeling that um, Holly Rubenhold drew a line under her research when it came to anything that involved the death or aftermath, or anything associated with the, with the death of the victim, that she um, she had no interest in, and I think uh, it's it's I don't know about the the, the rest of you, but it interested me that uh, that her knowledge of the police, how the police worked, what the police setup was at the time, anything to do with crime. All of that stuff is really where she makes she she makes lots of mistakes. Just ones that left out of the page, tiny things that's of no no significance, but they are mistakes. Is where she calls Israel Lipsky. She calls Moses Lipsky. Adolf Beck. She gets wrong and calls him Alfred Beck. She describes the Ratcliffe Highway murders as one of England's first serial killings, and she even makes mistakes with the names of ripperologists and their book titles, I mean, anything. But there, there are some sort of biggish errors that she makes as well that I noted on page six. Again, it's nothing, nothing big, but it just suggests that she wasn't that familiar with, uh, with, with the, the police setup is where she says, uh, about Nichols, she was to become the first of the five canonical victims of Jack the Ripper, uh, or those whose deaths the police determined were committed by the same hand in the East End district of Whitechapel. Well, of course, not all the victims were murdered in Whitechapel. Eddowes was murdered in the city of London, which was in the jurisdiction of a completely different police force. Um, the police didn't determine that the canonicals were murdered by the same perpetrator. That was McNaughton, as we know. Uh, and people like Sir Robert Anderson actually included Martha Tabram and other policemen included 
or excluded various uh, some of the canonicals. It's, there are examples, I think, here of where she she just doesn't seem to understand the crime setup and the police setup. So she talks about Scotland Yard um, uh, assisting the City of London Police, doesn't she, on page seven? Uh, yes, I, I, I think she says um, that uh, H Division, uh, even with, uh, she, so she's visualising H Division as a uh, almost a separate investigative body, uh, and says something along the lines of um, even even with the assistance from Scotland Yard and the City of London Police, uh, nothing uh, useful was was found. She th- she sort of imagines that Scotland Yard and and the City of London Police were helping H Division to investigate all five crimes, um, which as said it's nitpicky point perhaps but I would have thought that it might have been a good idea to have had a basic understanding of the Metropolitan Police and the City of London Police and who was responsible for investigating what I think with just just to go very quickly back to the you know the unmentioned victims I think that by including them even saying that there'd been just a thing saying there'd been earlier murders in Whitechapel that are now not believed to have been committed by Jack the Ripper. I know she doesn't want to focus on Jack the Ripper, but it would have given context to why, in Polly Nichols' case, the newspapers are so obsessed immediately. Because almost, you know, this newspaper obsession goes towards the argument that it was a judgmental thing on the lives of prostitutes. Um, Whereas it's not, it's because there was this epidemic of murders as far as the papers were concerned and they were building up the story and you know, the press were inflating it in a way but it was that the context is important there I think that would have been useful even if it was just a sentence in the introduction that this as far as the press and the general public concerned it wasn't the first murder I just want to return to something that Paul uh, described earlier which is uh, relates to why the police came to the conclusion that Polly Nichols was a prostitute. And part of that was uh, the information they were given by some women from 18th Straw Street who knew Marianne Nichols and who identified her body. Uh, and Paul read out uh, quote from the newspaper, quote from the Pall Mall Gazette, 1st of, of September 1888. Uh, and I'm just going to read that bit again, because I think this is really worth going through in detail. So, apologies for the repetition. Uh, so, the report reads, women from that place, 18 Thrill Street, were fetched and they identified the deceased as Polly, who had shared a room with three other women in the place. On the usual terms of such houses, nightly payment is fourpence each, each woman having a separate bed. It was gathered that the deceased had led the life of an unfortunate while lodging in the house, which was only for about three weeks past. Nothing more was known of her by then, but that when she presented herself for her lodging on Thursday night, she was turned away by the deputy because she had not the money. The way that report is used in Hallie Rubenhold's book is in my view very misleading. This is what Harry Rubenhold says on page 83. 
when the story first broke, before anything substantial was known about Polly's life, almost every major newspaper in the country carried a piece stating, quote, it was gathered that the deceased had led the life of an unfortunate, end quote. Now, that, that's not just newspaper speak, as, as a report in the Pall Mall Gazette, which Paul quoted earlier, makes completely clear, that was the information given by the ladies from 18 Thrill Street. It's not just newspapers making assumptions about the victim. That was about people, that information came from people who knew the victim. And Hallie Rubenholt goes on to say, uh, so let me go back a bit. It was gathered, quote, it was gathered that the deceased had led the life of an unfortunate, end quote, in spite of also reporting that, quote, nothing, three suspension points, was known of her that nothing was known of her. But that's not what the quote actually says. It says that she had, uh, the quote from the newspaper, it was gathered that the deceased had led the life of an unfortunate while lodging in the house, uh, which was for only about three weeks past. Nothing more was known of her by them, nothing more was known of her by them, but that she was refused a place on the previous Thursday. So it's not saying that nothing was known of her and that the, they filled the gap with an assumption about her yeah, using prostitution to make ends meet. What the women said who knew her was that she'd led the life of an unfortunate while she was lodging in that house for about the last three weeks, and they knew nothing more about her apart from she had been refused entry the previous Thursday. It is completely different to say that nothing was known of her or nothing more was known of her. There's a, there, there's a qualitative difference between those two things. I think it's very unfortunate that the book does resort to that. Misquoting, slightly, tri slight, slightly tri tricky, uh, slightly slippery treatment of sources. It's not the only example. That is not the only example. No, there's, there's, there's one example where she says, uh, quote, following inquiries made amongst women in the same class, and then three suspension marks, at public houses in the locality, end quote, the police could find not a single witness who could confirm that she had been among the ranks of those who sold sex, she being Chapman, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's a footnote number, number 13, this being a reference to, uh, to an endnote. Now, if you go to the endnote, the source is a, is a home office file, I won't give all the details, but it's there. Um, and this this is um, uh, consists of an index and a fairly long report by Chief Inspector Swanson, uh, dated the 19th of October, 1888, which enumerates the investigation uh, to that date. And what the report actually says is, quote, Inquiries were also made amongst women of the same class as the deceased, comma, and public houses in the locality, end quote. The report does not make any mention of the police having been, been unable to find uh, anyone who could confirm that Chapman was a prostitute. In fact, uh, no mention is made of the police even having looked for anyone who could confirm that Chapman was a prostitute. It simply says that inquiries were also made amongst the women of the same class as the deceased uh, and at pubs. Now, what, what Hallie Rubenhold has done is, is take from Swanson's report the statement that inquiries had been made among women and pubs 
then added her statement that they hadn't found anybody to confirm that Chapman had been a prostitute. And given the impression that the, the search amongst the, the women and, and the pubs had been in an effort to, to, to find that information out, to find out whether there was anybody who could confirm that Chapman was a prostitute. And that, that isn't in fact what this report says. It, and and she, she puts the, the footnote number uh, at the end of, uh, of her bit that they couldn't find a single witness, which gives the impression that the Home Office file actually said that. Um, it, as you say, it just seems to me that doing something like that is, 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 you know, is manipulating the source to try and make it look as if it's saying something that it isn't. Yes, so it's been... That brings me back to, to this uh, quote that I do want to read out. And, you know, whether it makes the podcast or not, I don't really mind. This is a quote from um, Richard J. Evans, a uh, British uh, historian of um, significant reputation. Uh, and this is on page 257 of his book called Telling Lies About Hitler, which was uh, discussing the misrepresentation of the Holocaust by David Irving. Uh, Evans says, Professor Evans, he says this. Reputable and his professional historians do not suppress parts of quotations from documents that go against their own case, but take them into account and, if necessary, amend their own case accordingly. They do not present as genuine documents which they know to be forged just because these forgeries happen to back up what they're saying. They do not invent ingenious but implausible and utterly unsupported reasons for distrusting genuine documents because these documents run counter to their arguments. Again, they amend their arguments if this is the case, or indeed abandon them altogether. They do not consciously attribute their own conclusions to books and other sources which, in fact, on closer inspection, actually say the opposite. They do not eagerly seek out the highest possible figures in a series of statistics, independently of their reliability or otherwise, simply because they want, for whatever reason, to maximise the figures in question, but rather they assess all the available figures as impartially as possible in order to arrive at a number that will withstand the critical scrutiny of others. They do not knowingly present mistranslations of sources in foreign languages in order to make them more serviceable to themselves. They do not willfully invent words, phrases, quotations, incidents and events for which there is no historical evidence in order to make their arguments more plausible. At least, they do not do any of these things if they wish to retain any kind of reputable status as a historian. So, comparisons with David Irving, I am not comparing Hallie Rubenholtz to David Irving at all. David Irving is a, a completely separate level of um, historical misconduct. But when people have recourse to flawed methodologies, which are those like those adopted by people who seek to deny the Holocaust, so that we are below the threshold for historical responsibility at that point. And clearly, denying the Holocaust is a whole different level of wrong compared to talking about Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper does not bring us, I think, into anything like the domain of uh, significance which you might uh, encounter if you wanted to discuss the Holocaust. But we should treat historical events according to the social conventions and the social contract between historians and society. Society, not everyone in society is a historian, but society trusts historians to treat 
sources respectfully and according to certain conditions so that the conclusions they draw can be relied upon by people who haven't consulted those sources. Well, when historians dip below that standard, the public is misled. And unfortunately, in this book, in the five, the public is sometimes misled. There's uh, a very good but slightly complicated argument. Um, Hollywood and Hold looks at the statements that Marianne Nichols told to Ellen Holland. Basically, but what, what she's saying is, is that um, Nichols told Holland that she didn't want to stay at a mixed-sex uh, establishment, but wanted to come back to the single-sex, uh, women-only um, common lodging house uh, that was 18 Troll Street, which was called Wilmot's. The, the five says, quote, uh, the comment was made in contrast to the lodgings available at Wilmot's, which were single sex, and which she, that is Nichols, preferred. In reference to the White House, which is the one that Nichols had been staying at for the last few days, Holly stated that she didn't like to go there, and that there were too many men and women. Now, there's a slight misinterpretation or misrepresentation here, because... Uh, to, in, in, to give the impression that Marianne Nichols preferred the single-sex Wilmot's lodging house to the mixed-sex White House. That sort of not too subtly implies that uh, by by preferring the single-sex establishment, uh, then that, that Nichols therefore wasn't a prostitute. In fact, the source which um, Hallie Rubenhold gives is, is the East London Observer for the 8th of September, uh, 1888. Uh, and that newspaper reported two references by Holland to the White House. She said, the first one is, she told me that she was living in another house together with a lot of men and women. And the second reference is, quote, she said there were too many men and women at the place she was staying at and she didn't like to go there. Now, the first thing to note is that nothing Nichols said about the White House was in contrast to the single-sex lodgings at Wilmot. Nichols' complaint was not that it was mixed sex, but that a lot of people stayed there. There were too many men and women at the place, and the White House was indeed a very large establishment in comparison to Wilmot. So... By sort of twisting what Nichols actually said to Holland, uh, we get a, a, a misrepresentation of, uh, of what uh, Nichols was saying and, and by implication that she was not a prostitute. So there, there are a number of, uh, as you say, a number of these examples of misuse, I think, misuse of sources, which, as, uh, as you've read out, it falls, it falls below an accepted standard. Yes. Yes, I was trying to think of a nice way of putting it. So I want to talk about also, Annie Rubenhold says that one of Annie Chapman's children, that is Annie Georgina Chapman, uh, was born uh, in 1873 with fetal alcohol syndrome. Uh, and she bases that 
diagnosis on a picture of um, Annie Georgina Chapman in which she identifies uh, the physical characteristics and uh, the book says, uh, in, quote, small, wide-set eyes, thin upper lip, and a smooth ridge that runs below the nose to the top lip. Um, now, uh, she's, uh, the book's absolutely right about those characteristics. In fact, the space between the eyes is not a diagnostic criterion for fetal alcohol syndrome, but the, the width of the eyes is. Uh, you know, we're on slightly thin ice with diagnostics of this sort because you, you also need things like neurodevelopmental markers for a complete diagnosis of fetal alcohol syndrome, but I understand that as a historian, she's not trying to attempt a real diagnosis in the way that a clinician would attempt it. Um, I can't tell from this picture whether Annie Georgina's eyes are actually two or more standard deviations below the mean, and no one can. Uh, but I, on the whole, looking at the picture and looking at the diagnostics, I think there's every chance that... Um, Annie Georgina Chapman might well have had fetal alcohol syndrome. Uh, and I also think, on the same basis, that if you look at the picture of Annie Georgina Chapman's elder sister, who is called Emily Ruth Chapman, she might also have had uh, fetal alcohol syndrome. So I say, on the whole, uh, that's a pretty good spot uh, by Hallie Rubenhold, um, and I'm kind of happy with it. What I'm not happy with is... Is, is where it goes from there. So there's a footnote that follows uh, shortly after this um, this description about fetal alcohol syndrome. And this is what the footnote in the five says. Phillips, uh, that's George Baxter Phillips, the police surgeon for H Division, was brief about the nature of Annie's illness because it played no role in her death. His entire, brackets, paraphrased statement was that she displayed a, quote, disease of the lungs, uh, square brackets, which was long-standing, and there was disease of the membranes of the brain. Recently, a number of authors have, this This, this is um, the five uh, going on, the footnote goes on, recently a number of authors have, without any evidence, stated that Annie suffered from syphilis because of the mention of damage to the brain. The type of damage that Phillips reported is known to occur in cases of tuberculosis, where the bacteria spread to other parts of the body. If Annie had been exposed to syphilis, signs of the brain degeneration or neurosyphilis that occurs in the tertiary phase of the illness would not have appeared for at least 10 to 30 years after the initial exposure. There's no evidence whatsoever to support the suggestion that Annie engaged in prostitution as a teen or through her marriage years or that she was ever exposed to syphilis. And my comment about that is, I don't know who really she means by a number of authors have without any evidence stated that Annie suffered from syphilis, but I might be one of them. Uh, in uh, Ripperologist 149, uh, two or three years ago, uh, I wrote an article about Annie Chapman and syphilis, and it was published under the name of Team Syphilis. I had done some research with a number of other people, and partly through this research, the, the result was, among other things, this article. I wrote the article. They all saw the article before it went into publication. The article talks about Kassowitz's law, and Kassowitz was an Austrian paediatrician 
who had noticed, and this is a quote from his 1876 book, Die Verhebung des Syphilis, there is a gradual diminution in the severity of congenital transmission of syphilis between a mother and fetus. It is a pattern beginning with miscarriages, followed by stillbirths, neonatal deaths, unhealthy but living children, and finally the birth of healthy, healthy children. So syphilis works its way out through repeated uh, cycles of pregnancy and childbirth. This is what Kassovitz noted. And actually, the research that Harry Rubenhold has done, finding children of Annie Chapman who neurologists um, weren't aware of before, actually substantiates the suggestion that I make in that article that she might have contracted syphilis in about 1874 and that it might have worked its way out through, through the subsequent maternal cycles. There appears to be an one child uh, who uh, we don't know of, possibly stillborn around 1874, 1875. Then there's Georgina, whom I discuss in the article, who lived for about 10 days in 1876. Then there was George William Henry, who uh, Harry Rubenhold discovers, who lived for plus or minus 11 weeks in 1877, 1888. Then there was Miriam Lilly. Uh, then there was John Alfred Chapman, born with disabilities but survived in 1880. And this is absolutely typical. This sequence is absolutely typical of Kassovitz's law. Now, there's lots of ways in which you can catch syphilis. Well, there's some ways in which you can catch syphilis which don't include commercial sex. So I say in this article, I speculate that Annie Chapman may have been exposed to syphilis in around 1874. And maybe she got it through casual prostitution to support an alcohol habit or or maybe she got it because her husband had slept with someone else who had syphilis and passed it on to her. We don't know how she, how, uh, she contracted syphilis, but the birth pattern is exactly what you'd expect from someone who did have syphilis. Also, in terms of um, the objection in the five to you know, uh, the brain degeneration, if late 1873, early 1874 was when Annie Chapman was exposed to syphilis, then we are talking... Mm, 14 years later and the point made in the book is that the brain's generation wouldn't wouldn't would not have appeared for at least 10 to 30 years after the initial exposure so that kind of meets those criteria as well um i'm not talking about any chapman being exposed to syphilis in the 1880s i'm talking about it in the sort of early to mid 1870s so i think it's i don't know i don't know whether she is referring to me in uh, or, or that article. She doesn't cite the article. Um, I think there is some evidence there. It's not conclusive evidence. It's inferential evidence. I think there is some evidence there that uh, Annie Chapman may well have contracted syphilis um, in the early to mid-1870s. And I think, therefore, that it's misleading to say there's absolutely no evidence of it. I, uh, what, I, what I prefer to have seen in the book is the author engaging with that evidence and saying why she thinks it's not reliable, saying why she thinks it's wrong. I don't have a problem if the author considers that Annie Chapman, in fact, didn't have syphilis. I, I can't prove absolutely that she did. But I want to know why that evidence has been excluded. I want to know why that evidence has been obscured. And that is my criticism of the book overall, is that we never find out, or we very rarely find out, what kind of historical processes the author has gone through to decide 
what is reliable evidence and what is not. We don't have, and she doesn't present her reasoning in this case. She just says there's no evidence. That's not by itself a true statement. I would have preferred if she'd engaged with the evidence and, and explained why, if she thinks that it's not reliable, why not? Yeah, throughout the book she, she does present it uh, as a bit of a novel. She doesn't, doesn't get involved in arguing the whys and wherefores of, uh, of things, but um, and just, just gives her conclusion of whatever it might be. So in her view, you know, there's no evidence that, uh, that of syphilis, and so that's it. Um, and that's, that's sort of understandable in a sense in the, in the context of the book, but if you want to write a book on a subject that, you know, is basically new to you and, you know, you should try to explain why it is that you disagree with the opinions of people who, who have studied the subject for a, for a long time or uh, disagree with, with, with their interpretations of the evidence. And, and in this case, you're making a very good case for there being syphilis. Well, it's easier, uh, isn't it? It's easier to say there's absolutely no evidence than to try and explain why someone picked up syphilis. I mean, yeah. it's that, easier. That serious, but that's irresponsible. I think that uh, if the book wanted to make the point and thought it could substantiate it, which we have problems with, that, the, that three of Jack Ripper's victims were never prostitutes. Uh, you could still say one of them has syphilis in the 1870s and we don't know how she got it and maybe she got it through non-commercial sex, maybe she slept with someone who had syphilis already, maybe that was her husband, maybe it was somebody else, doesn't imply that she's a prostitute. That argument, that conclusion is still available to you. That The conclusion that Annie Chapman was not a prostitute is still available to you, even yeah. if you decide that you can accept or you can at least argue with the case for her having syphilis. You don't have to say that she doesn't have syphilis or that she never had syphilis in order to make that argument. You can still make it. I think the problem is that if you do look at uh, the birth pattern, Kasowitz's law, and the very unfortunate fates of uh, the children from 1874 onwards, uh, you have to come to conclude what I feel like. You have, there's a very strong case there uh, for maternal syphilis. And then you have to deal with the argument after that. Then, that, well, maybe she was funding her alcohol addiction by engaging in prostitution. That argument could be made at that point. You'd have to address it. And I think what she has done is she has shied away from addressing those more tricky parts of the story. But that is an irresponsible approach. That is not a good historical approach just to say the evidence doesn't exist. That's not truthful. The evidence is there, may not be completely conclusive, but she needs to engage with it and tell us if she feels that it can't be relied upon. Why not? It's yeah. one of the rare instances of her actually acknowledging information that she thinks is incorrect. Um, yes, I was, she I was just about to say the same thing. Is that it is not? It's, I want to make this plain that it's not something I would personally do in a book. But 
if she wanted to, she should really have avoided mentioning that authors think she had syphilis. If, if, if she if she hadn't acknowledged it, then she wouldn't have had to have answered it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I say again, I don't know that she's looked at this particular article. I only know this article because I wrote this article. Um, she she could be referring to other authors. Other, I, I do not know. I do, yeah. but I, I just I just feel that in you know Robert spoke earlier about totality of the evidence. This is again more evidence that that needed to be taken into account. To, to extend on from that, there, there are uh, a couple of examples in in the book uh, that I noticed where she sort of uh, brings up some non sequiturs, uh, if you can have a plural of non sequiturs. One that, that I noted, which in particular was, as soon as each body, I'm quoting her, as soon as each body was discovered in a dark yard or street, the police assumed that the woman was a prostitute killed by a maniac who had lured her to the location for sex. There is, and never was, any proof of this either. To the contrary, over the course of the coroner's inquest, it became known that Jack the Ripper never had sex with a single victim. Now, basically, what she's doing here is saying that the police assumption that they were dealing with a maniac who was killing prostitutes, who lured, lured his uh, victims to the to, to the, where they were killed for sex. That that is negated by the statement that Jack the Ripper had never had sex with a single victim. She she misses the whole point. Is that the that the uh, the murderer lured the victims to where they were found for sex and then killed them. The, 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 Basically, he had no intention ever of having sex with them. He was getting there. His thing was to kill them. Uh, so, so there's a and, and there's several instances. She uh, she writes of, of Mary Kelly's father's attempt to find her when she was living in in, a, in Pennington Street. She said, whatever his identity, he was almost certainly not Mary Jane Kelly's father. Mrs. Felix insisted that Mary Jane had no contact with her family who had discarded her, and Barnett, too, stated she saw none of her relations. Well, we know that when this man came looking for her, Mary Kelly hid and never met him. So, therefore, what Mrs. Felix and Joseph Barnett said was perfectly true. Uh, and it, but it doesn't alter, it, that, that doesn't mean that the man wasn't Kelly's father. Uh, so, they're, they're these little sort of problems of logic that you get when you're going through the book and you think oh, she changed her name wasn't she she's supposed to have changed her name according to the author when she arrived in uh, in uh, Ratcliffe and um, so whoever was looking for her would you have known about this name or, 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 yeah. or was it her name I mean you know was it her real name yeah, but, there are all sorts of questions out there that yeah, there are. Yeah, it doesn't make sense, does it? Because she says she 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 believed changed her name to Mary Kelly, yet somebody was looking for her. Well, who would have known what name would they have used to, to look for her? Yeah, it makes sense, not to me anyway. She also says about Kelly that the stories that she told about herself likely contain some truth and some fiction, but no one has ever been able to ascertain which parts were which. 
And then on the immediate page following, she says, the only likely conclusion is that the tale of Mary Jane Kelly's life, including her name, was entirely fabricated. Well, which is it? She doesn't always follow her logic through, does she? No. Uh, It's almost as if she'd written two pages that, you know, gone on holiday in between and forgotten what she'd written. Should we do the the summing up and recommendation? When you talk about recommending, I mean, I was was saying that because I did recommend it for the biographies of the women. I thought that was really good. But as we've been discussing tonight and we've been talking about it, and Mark as well has made it sort of very clear that, you know, actually, no, I don't think we should recommend it really as a as a, a serious study of of the women's lives because there's too much in it that is not if there's a lot of misinformation. And I think that I, if somebody wants a story or something to read that doesn't necessarily interest in Jack the Ripper, they might enjoy the book as as almost a novel, you know, and they can learn quite a bit from that. You know, as a social history exercise, the lives of the women actually, the very typical lives of a lot of women, uh, you know, across the country, their lives um, and the poverty, the struggle they had. And so in that sense, I would recommend it to somebody who just wanted a book to read that they would find, you know, that as a serious study, no, I wouldn't recommend it. I um, I waffled back and forth over the past couple months as to whether I would recommend it. I used to believe that Neil Sheldon's book is so difficult to find, and when it's found, it can be pretty expensive. Not everybody follows the discussions on a daily basis on the Casebook message boards or the JTR forums or the discoveries that are being made. People um, might not be subscribing to Ripperologist magazine. So... For those types of readers that she's trying to reach as a general audience, I used to believe that, yes, I would have recommended it if you can set aside the amount of biased theorizing that goes into the book. But ultimately, I reached the decision that there's too many ifs in in my recommendation. Um, If you can't get Sheldon, if you don't, follow the case and the new discoveries if you can overlook the agenda that that she has based her entire book around and so i don't think that bigger necessarily means better yes it has more pages than neil sheldon's book um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that is um, a better uh, quality of a book and so i i don't think i would recommend I wouldn't recommend it for anyone who's uh, interested in ripperology. I, I don't think, I can't, I don't understand the book, to be honest. I don't understand where she's coming from with this. She started off with a, an idea to, to prove that these women weren't prostitutes. But it, it doesn't seem to make any difference anyway. I don't, I don't understand why she'd want to prove that. It didn't make a difference to the investigation, the way the police handled it. She's put the she put the lot of the women back in context, but she's taken away a big part of it as well, a big part of the context by taking away Jack the Ripper. I, I totally agree with you, Deb. I think I think you know I, I did actually put uh, I did actually put the question about you know has she 
has she done what she set out to do? And to me, uh, you know, she was trying to prove that these women uh, weren't prostitutes. I don't think that what she set out to do, I don't think she actually did it. I don't, I don't think at the end of the book we all came to her conclusions at all. And I think that you're, you're right, you know, she set off, she set on an idea, but it didn't really make sense as the, as the book went on. No, I don't, I personally, I don't think that uh, she set out to prove that they weren't prostitutes. I think she arrived at that conclusion <laughs> probably before she even set uh, pen to paper. Um, I think so. Well, I get that feeling because, or at least it must have come very soon after she started writing because the theme that they, that at least three of them weren't prostitutes is something that runs through the whole of the book. And it's not something that ripperologists want to prove that the victims were prostitutes. But she wants to prove that they weren't, but she's arrived at that conclusion. So throughout, she's telling you in one way or another, there's no evidence that these people were prostitutes. Mm. And that, frankly, is wrong because there is evidence that they were prostitutes. may not be particularly good evidence. It may not be strong evidence. <laughs> it may not be conclusive in any way. It's there. And it should be discussed, and in fact, she just ignores it totally. So I think that throughout the book, she wanted to start off by saying, look, these three women weren't prostitutes. They were branded prostitutes by sexist policemen in 1888, and they have been branded that way ever since by sexist researchers, which is effectively something that she did once say. I, I, I sense that that... That, that was the, her agenda when she sat down, that she'd already kind of decided on this. In the book, at the, right at the beginning, she tells that, you know, that these women were not prostitutes because presumably she'd been looking into their lives before she sat down. But I think she, I think her purpose was to, it was, a, it was an agenda, a feminist agenda, a feminist angle that she wanted to write the book. I don't feel myself that it was through any real sense that history was wrong. It was misogynist society, this, this awful uh, society that, that Victorian life was like at that time and how women were generally treated and that, you know, immediately came to conclusions that they were prostitutes because they were found where they were. And I feel myself that the, the book itself has that theme all the way through it. And I think that was her intention from the beginning. I think a serious weakness of this book is that rather than engaging with the evidence to suggest that uh, the victims of Jack the Ripper were, in, were working as prostitutes at or near the time of their death, actually this book just obscures that as evidence and, and states openly that that evidence doesn't exist. But it does exist, and I feel like that's a, that's a failure of historical method at that point. Which, when the method fails, the conclusions you can't, you can't even get as far as considering whether the conclusions are viable because the method has, has gone down in the first place. I think, in terms of uh, whether the author had a, had a, an established intention before she started writing the book, I'm not sure. Um, 
whether she did or not, and I, I don't think I can speculate about it. I don't blame um, feminism, for example, for the way this book looks. I think, as from, from my understanding, if you're writing feminist history, history from a feminist point of view, your responsibility to the sources is the same as everybody else's. Uh, and obscuring the sources and then saying that those sources don't exist is that's not method that's not a methodology which feminist histori- history uh, accommodates any more than any other form of history so there there is a there is a problem there i feel like uh, a better book would have been more of a negotiation that evidence would have been uh, included in the discussion and if the author considers that, that evidence isn't good evidence and ought to be disposed of in favour of another interpretation, we should know why. And the problem is in this book that we don't know why. But I don't know why the lodging house women talking about Marianne Nichols, for example, were treated as reliable in one part of what they said, but unreliable in the other part. And, uh, and we're not told why the part of what they told the newspapers, uh, which didn't or didn't doesn't seem to conform to the author's thesis, uh, we're not told why that's been obscured. We're not told why that's been admitted. Uh, we don't know uh, what her reasoning was uh, for doing that. The, the worry I have there is that when you don't know what reasoning process the author has gone through, then you have to look about look at the quality of the mis- of the mistakes the author makes. And my analogy, which I used with some of you, I think, before, was um, that if I worked for a bank and like Robert's money ended up in Deborah's account and Deborah's money ended up in Paul's account and Paul's money ended up in Jonathan's account, you'd all come to me and say you're an incompetent bank worker. You're making mistakes all the time. And I would be making mistakes. And historians make mistakes because they're human beings. But I'd be making mistakes in all random directions because I wouldn't know that they were mistakes. If my methodology was so poor that I just I couldn't use it properly, those mistakes would be made in all directions. But if Robert's money and Deborah's money and Paul's money and Amanda's money end up in my bank account, you wouldn't come to me and say you're an incompetent bank worker. You'd come to me and say you've done something wrong, that you've, you've cheated the system. And in this book, if, that, if the evidence for the victims being prostitutes has been obscured, that doesn't look like a simple mistake. That looks like that the reader has been deprived of the opportunity to consider that evidence. And that, for me, is a significant problem. I feel like I'm hesitant to recommend it. Uh, I think that the very best bits of it are really good. Uh, I think where she's contributed to the fund of knowledge by finding out new information uh, through archival research, that's great. I'm really pleased with those parts of the book. What I'm not pleased with is uh, the methodology adopted. Uh, we've uh, considered a, a number of different cases where sources have been mishandled. Um, they all tend to um, err in the same direction, which is towards the author's thesis, which is a problem for me. And uh, I feel like, unfortunately, uh, the victims of Jack the Ripper have been done a slight disservice by this book. They are 3D people. They are real people. They are entitled to uh, being uh, to, to be considered seriously. 
uh, by historians. Unfortunately, this book doesn't do that in the way that it could. So a slightly missed opportunity. Yeah. I worried when the book was first announced. Uh, some of the things that uh, were being said then, I, I kind of, of, of worried about how uh, the general public perceive us. I'm, I'm perfectly well aware that the general public uh, perceives ripperology as uh, something akin to people who uh, study UFOs or <laughs> things of that nature, flat earth society perhaps. And I'd like to have... Uh, seen that what we do do uh, respected a little bit more particularly as the information, pretty much all the information that people would consider to be new like Elizabeth Stride was born in Sweden and Catherine Eddowes came from Wolverhampton, all that stuff we've known for years and years and years uh, and we have asked all the questions that Hallie Rubenhold seems to think that we haven't asked and so that the book itself, I love the uh, the, the, the contextualization. I, th I think that's excellent, and I and I really don't think uh, that ripperologists do enough of that. We we tend to to stick with the genealogical data that we can um, uh, and and stories that we can get from the newspapers or from uh, the appropriate uh, websites, but. We don't do the contextualization very much, and I, and I think that that was great, and I hope it really shows people the potential that's there to, to give these, uh, this uh, event a, a bigger, bigger meaning. The book, I think I agree with everybody else, was seriously let down by just all the stuff where, where the sources were manipulated and so forth. The the story of uh, that they weren't all prostitutes just doesn't stack up. We've got plenty of evidence that they they were, and that theme runs through the whole of the book. I think if Harry Rubenhold had actually just stuck to telling the story of the victims, uh, then, as I've said, I think we'd be saying really nice things about the book. Unfortunately, she didn't, and that's really what has let the book down, I suspect that that is what most people, when they come to read it, will comment on. As I said in my introduction, um, when her book was first announced, we were all anxious to find out if she was going to be discovering anything majorly new. Uh, in particular, people were excited about Mary Kelly, but in general, everyone that I knew of in the Ripperology community was uh, very curious and really looking forward to the book. Uh, we welcome outside researchers taking a fresh look at the case, and we welcome historians digging through archives that maybe haven't been searched before, finding something new. You know, that's our lifeblood of the field. Um, we've been characterized as being gatekeepers. But somehow, no one is allowed to research the Whitechapel murders unless they get our approval when it, it doesn't work that way. People are free to research all they want and we welcome new researchers. But the product at the end is going to be critiqued and that's what we've been doing on the show today. 
So thank you for participating in this roundtable book review of Hallie Rubenholtz, The Five, today. Thanks, John. Yes, thank you.